Greetings, everybody. Once again, welcome to the Rec Poker Podcast. I am your host, Steve Fredland, and today I'm excited to share with you an interview that I just did with phenomenal player Jason Seitz. I think you'll enjoy the conversation. A lot of good insight and just great getting to know a little bit more of his story and how he thinks about the game. Quick shout out to the Free Poker Network, who has been sponsoring the Rec Poker Podcast. I know they've got their state and national tournaments coming up. So shout out to them. Good luck, everybody that's participating in the state in, in uh, coming up here in April, May, and June. Uh, good luck out in Vegas for those of you that make it out there. So with that, without further ado, uh, why don't you listen up to this interview that I just had with Jason Seitz. All right. Uh, well, here with Jason Seitz, sitting at the kitchen table, enjoying a nice sunny day while we're inside. Um, First of all, just thanks for taking the time for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. We've had some opportunity to play together. You're one of those guys that always seems to own my soul. <laughs> and I know there's I know there's strategy. I know there's thought behind that. For me, I'm just trying to figure out why is that I'm always uncomfortable playing against you. So I'm excited to get all your secrets now and <laughs> be able to bust you. But um, just we've, I guess we're poker acquaintances. I've got to know you a little bit that way. But maybe if you wouldn't mind, just start out a little bit. How did you get into the game? What's your backstory for... For Texas Hold'em. Well, in 2000, uh, when Canterbury opened, I uh, was a poker dealer. And like most, you know, newbie poker players, I wanted to play poker, you know, before and after work. And <laughs> so I did, and, you know, I I was a normal poker player. It, it was a progression for me. I mean, I uh, generally lost a f- most of the time <laughs> when I was playing in the beginning, and and today, I mean, I, I do much better. Uh, I think a lot of people, problem when it comes to poker is patience. And I think I learned that part of the game very well because, uh, you know, I've always been a laid back guy. But as far as patience is concerned, that's kind of what my strength, I think, is in poker now. Did you pick up a lot of that from dealing and watching? Was that a huge part of learning the game? or I think it was just... Losing. <laughs> losing something has uh, to change. got me uh, to change uh, my strategies, I guess. Were you a dealer before Canterbury opened somewhere else? Or? No, that's when I learned how to deal and where I basically learned poker. I mean, I'm old school. I, have, I learned from hands-on playing, losing and winning. Um, I haven't been a book reader, you know, online you know i i dab on online these days but because uh, it's easy now but okay you know back when i was playing you know there wasn't really much podcasting going on so how did how did you get better then did, was it just just in your head just kind of breaking down why am i losing and trying to figure that out or did you you know did you approach it analytically or more you know how, how did you approach getting better without external influence i guess I think it was is more of a the more you do stuff, the more you learn, and I think the best way to learn is actually doing it and seeing it in person. Um, I think that's the best way to learn anything. I mean, you can learn stuff by books and stuff, and if you don't apply it, you're really not learning it. Yeah, you're just uh, seeing it, and you try different things. You know, like a smaller buy-in tournament, I'll try different things and, you know, see, well, that didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go to the next. But, uh, yeah, I could read over and over again that ace-jack under the gun is not a great hand. <laughs> but it took, you know, losing with it several times to realize, well, maybe there is something to this. Exactly. <laughs> so so what are you playing now? Like, I guess how much do you play? What sort of games? Are you doing this full-time, part-time? Kind of give us your current poker. Well, I mean, tournament poker... In Minnesota's, you know, I don't know if anybody can say they're full time, because uh, you know, you're really you're part time. Um, you know, I live only a couple miles from Canterbury, and I'm only there once or twice a week playing tournaments or cash. And uh, generally, it's you know, you if you live in Minnesota and you don't travel all the time you're really a part-time poker player right and do you between cash and tournaments are you 
sort of 50-50, or how would you, are you mostly cash and play um, big tournaments when they come through? I'm mostly tournaments right now. I'm about 75-25 for tournaments and cash. Um, usually if I get knocked out of a tournament, I'll go play cash. That's, I wouldn't recommend that because that's not usually when the best time to play cash, but... Because your emotional state, or just say you maybe aren't playing your A game? Or? Yeah, probably not playing your A game. And, you know, if you get knocked out early in the tournament, you'd probably be all right. But if you get knocked out later on, you're playing, you're in a tournament mode. And yeah. Going to tournament mode and cash is two different games. But a lot of times in cash, I play PLO and Omaha, so it's, it's a completely different game. So it doesn't matter too much for me. But for most people, going from like a no limit tournament to a limit cash is not recommended. It's too big of a shift. It is. Okay, so in terms of tournaments, what are you playing? Do you, are, do you play any of the weeklies or is it when the bigger tournaments come through? Like locally I'll play Wednesday night at Canterbury and I'll play uh, uh, when the bigger tournaments come. And, okay. Uh, like my wife just became a poker dealer so she travels to deal poker and I'll go with her and we did uh, three stops in the last you know two months so like I had like six weeks of poker so which tour is that that you're like she did the WSOP circuit okay and then she did Chicago CPC okay you got to Vegas then for the World Series at all yeah she's you both go out there then or we'll both go out there this year uh, in end of May so is that something you normally do every year? I, last year was my first year of doing it uh, for the whole time. How did it go? I went well. Um, I had a 10th place finish, and I cashed six times, but two World Series, two Venetian, and two, uh, I think it was Planet Hollywood. Okay, part of their famous yes. series? <laughs> okay, so was it, a, was it a profitable summer out there? It was a profitable summer. I think I... Netted about ten thousand after all expenses. So. Okay, that's a good thing. It's better than the opposite. Maybe that's not true. all you're looking for, but it's yeah, better, than, better than the opposite, I guess. Had a couple chances uh, at the World Series. You know, that tenth place finish. I mean, you move up one spot, and that's eight thousand more. You know, which event was that? Or what, uh, not necessarily number, but was it a fifteen hundred dollar no limit? Okay, uh, twenty two sixty, I think, was the number for the. Number of entrants. Okay. And I finished tenth. And yeah, how do you feel about that? In general, that that curve. Obviously, we all we all know, and there's always this debate about the curve and whether that's your weekly thirty dollar tournament at Running Aces or it's your World Series of Poker. You know, you you get that far, you get tenth out of twenty three hundred people, and I'm sure the payday was good. But when you look at boy, if I could just made it two or three more spots, how do you feel about that that curve, that structure? I mean, it's. It is what it is. I mean, I don't really, I think it should be more flat, but, you know, I know that they had that big debate about running aces, whether they should pay 10% or 15%. Right. I mean, I'm leaning, I would lean towards the 12 to 15% payout structure compared to the 10, but. Um, but still keep the kind of slope at the top three the way it is. I mean, there's, well, the advantages are you can say, hey, this person won this much. So there's some real marketing pull. There's some real uh, playing to win and increases the aggression. Yeah, I can definitely see why, you know, the WSOP does what they do and mm -hmm. is top heavy and, you know, there's a lot of, you know, pull when you see someone making 400, 2,000. Nobody knows about the, where it finishes ninth or 10th or even second sometimes. Right. You know, so, I mean, they want to see the headlines. Yeah, I always think from a recreational poker perspective, at least myself and others, you know, there, there's a lot of the, the bigger tournaments, you know, I've had some success like the 280s and that sort of thing, but realistically, uh, you know, we're not going to find ourselves in those spots. So you tend to shy away because, okay, a great result for me at a 280 might be doubling my buy-in, you know, yeah, which, which is nice and good and that sort of thing, but it, it's harder to say, well, I'm going to go take a shot here because I know unless the deck absolutely hits me in the head, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to be final tabling or going super deep. So it can be sort of a resistance for for the recreational players, but I do get the other side of it as well. I think paying out more slots is probably more of a benefit from a pure building the game because, I agree. you know, just from people like myself that go and play a $75 tournament, 
if I min cash for 90 bucks, I feel like, hey, I won. You know, my hobby was complete. You know, I, <laughs> I didn't lose money playing my hobby, and I'm going to be back playing again. You know. I agree 100%. And that's why I think uh, paying more spots. Like last year, WSOP did 15%, right. which I think worked out well for them. I mean, mm-hmm. their numbers seem to be growing. Yeah. And really, when it comes to the tournament poker, I mean, I don't think anybody does it better than WSOP. Yeah. I mean, they try different things. If it works, they keep it going. And if it doesn't, they get rid of it. Yeah. But it seems like every, whenever they do something, they do it right, it seems like. Yeah. Well, switching gears a little bit, you talked about patience being one of your core competencies, if you will. Sorry, I'm a business guy, so I, <laughs> I talk in terms of, of things like that. But how, how else would you categorize your own play? And I know... Poker players don't necessarily like to be labeled themselves, and I know it all depends on the table and stuff. But in general, are you more like a field player or an analytical GTO type guy? Or are you you into sort of the patient guy? Are you more on the aggressive side or more on the passive side? In, in general, if you were to look at yourself relative to you know your peers, how would you describe your game? I would say uh, passive aggressive. So you're Minnesotan. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. did say you're you were born in Minnesota, so you passive aggressive would fit very well. Hey, well so, what do you mean by that? Unpack that a little bit. Well, like like a lot of people will three bet certain hands and a lot of times I will just call. And you know, if I'm a, if I'm more of a be considered aggressive, I'd be three betting those every time. So you're okay. I will take the conservative route more times than I will the Especially early in the tournaments, where yeah. as usually happens, I mean, only bad things usually happen early in the tournaments. I mean, you know, you're you're there to play a long stretch of a tournament, and to be at risk an hour into the tournament just doesn't make sense to me. Okay. So, I'll take a more conservative route and see a flop, you know, with a big hand compared to a get an all-in pre, which, you know, the deck can do anything it wants to do. Right. So it's more of a pot control type of exactly. approach. Now you have to balance that. I mean, I'm always interested in this. I agree with that. Um, but, you know, you have, say you have a fairly big hand. You've got the ace-king, ace-queen, you know, pocket tens, pocket nines, pocket mm-hmm. jacks even. Fairly big hand, you know, but you've got a raise and you get a call. You know, and there's always that, for me, there's always this tension of I don't want to play a big pot early. I mean, I want to win a big pot early, but I don't really want to sure. play a big pot early. But I also don't want to play those necessarily four-handed. So is that a logical sort of thinking that you do, or is it more just an instinctual thing as far as, you know, if you've got a raise in a call, do you three-bet there just to thin the field versus, no, nah, you know, I'm just almost going to be set mining with my tens here. Yeah, I mean, I like a lot of times I'll take the approach of set mining the tens or peeling off a flapped, you know, Say I'm raising with tens and I get three bedded off flat call most of the time. Mm-hmm. Whether you know a lot of people either raise or shove, and you know, I just think calling there is a better spot than it is. You know you're not going to fold, mm-hmm. and you're you don't want to you don't want to risk your tournament life on you know a pair of tens. Right. If you if you shove, you're only going to get called by something ahead of you. I assume. Exactly. Okay. But. You know, there's approaches, you know, there's many ways to play any hand. Right. And, you know, I'll, I'll change gears too, but for the most part, I'll flat. So as the stacks get shallower, as you get deeper into the tournament, that's more of a decision around, yeah, I mean, uh, do I want to go with this you know, hand? Yeah, 10x, you know. Right. You know, you don't have much choices, you know. There, it's chips dictate how you're going to play a hand. Yep. At times, so. So, but you said we said passive aggressive. So we've covered kind of the passive side, but the aggressive side, more aggressive post flop, or do you mean just passive until the? Well, I'd say uh, you know if I have chips and you know I feel like I have good, good control of the table, I'll I'll be the aggressive one and I'll just uh, take control. You know when I, especially in position. Yeah. You know, I'll definitely do that plenty of times and. You know, a lot of times it's dictated by where I'm playing, who I'm playing against, and, you know, when you play locals and you know, you know, half the people on the table and you know what you can get away with and what you can't, mm-hmm. 
that's why I do enjoy traveling to different places where they don't know you. Mm. And I do recommend people trying that because, I mean, if you're staying, playing at the same spot and playing with the same players, you probably ain't going to get much better. You're probably just going to basically flatline and mm-hmm. be the same. I recommend traveling, seeing different spots and seeing where you do well and see where you don't. So you, you don't know them, so you lose that edge, but they don't know you, which is probably a bigger edge, especially in your case, where more people know who, who you exactly. are. You know, I, I guess I think about, you know, you, you said, you know, depending on who you're playing and different, your position, and, and one of the things I think about you, this is right or wrong, but we've played maybe, I don't know, half a dozen times probably. where we've been at the same table, and you, like I said, I feel like you've owned me, and, and so much of that is, whether it's uh, just happenstance or not, you're in position on me, and you're floating me. And it's driving me insane. <laughs> and so, you know, whether you're just floating me because you're waiting to see weakness and then coming back over the top, or if you actually are doing pot control with a bigger hand, you know, whatever that is, um, you know, you don't have to get done your whole strategy there, but you talked about playing the player. I assume that's part of what goes into your decision against playing against me or other people that are similar with less experience, you know, how you approach that versus, you know, if I'm... Mike Schneider making a raise. I don't, you know, know how much respect you have for Mike, but you know, one of the bigger names, more experienced players making a raise, and how you respond to that pre-flop or post-flop is going to be different, right? Correct. Yeah, it's it's definitely different. I mean, you know, like a like Mike's generally a tighter player, but you know, he'll be looser uh, post-flop or pre-flop. I mean, Uh, but post-flop, I mean, I put him in that. You know, ABC category where, mm-hmm. you know, generally if he's betting, he has it. <laughs> and But somebody like me that even if I have it, you know, or, you know, people similar to me, I assume that's a great spot for somebody with, like yourself to, to float and just kind of see what transpires. Either you have some equity in your hand or you're just waiting for weakness or... Yeah, generally if I if I float, though, I have some equity. I'll, yeah. I'll have a draw of some sort. Mm-hmm. You know, I won't just float someone just for the sake of floating, but... Yeah, and I will say I did win one big hand against you. At that least was that ace, I, I remember. I that do game. remember. Yeah, well, of course, you know the, the one time that I beat you, but <laughs> same same sort of thing where you had a massive draw. I remember I think you had, mm-hmm. I think you had a straight and a flush draw, and I had a top pair sort of situation. So I did hold up once against you <laughs> at least. But normally my experience with you is not so much getting to showdown and losing hands. It's it's you know coming at you, you know raising with ace king and you calling, and then the board doesn't connect, and I continuation bet, and I think oh, I'm gonna fire one more at the turn, and finally I'm like in this weird awkward spot <laughs> of okay I didn't connect, he's just floating me I think I don't know is he trapping me, and then until so I give up on the river and you make up a small bet and, and win the pot or whatever. So it's an interesting I think dynamic that I've learned a lot just from playing with you. Like okay well that drives me crazy. Can I drive somebody else crazy with that same move? So, I mean, I tried on the, the people. Generally, generally, it will work. It's just a matter of, you know, you got to have some equity. You can't just yeah. float just for the sake of floating. Because, I mean, you do make, you know, I make a small bet on the river, you know, floating. And, you know, if I have, I have to have something. Because if, if I'm going to make a small bet into a big pot, you mm-hmm. know, they're generally going to call me. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I usually have some equity. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just not floating you. Well, I think you're floating me. I think you're floating me just waiting for the moment I check and then you then you pounce. I don't know. That's what it feels like to me. So, um, so you talk about patience. Are there other things that have been whatever success you've had? And, and let, me, let me take a break. So success, I looked on Hendon Mob, and I know people have different perspectives on Hendon Mob, but just to get a feel for where you're at and... Uh, as of right now, you're you're rated uh, the GPI, the Global Poker Index, has you 561. It's pretty solid. I mean, you think about however they're rating people, whatever you think about that. But 561st, and so you're right in there with people like uh, uh, Andrew uh, uh, Chewy. You know, Chewy, what's his last name? Lichtenberger or something like that. Or... Uh, I can't remember. His... <laughs> <laughs> but 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 Matt, Mer- Matt Berkey, Josh Beckley, Jason Les, Shannon Shore, those guys are all kind of in that same place. So people that I see on TV, I'm like, ah, that's pretty cool. Um, but Minnesota, you're ranked 35th all-time in money in Minnesota. So obviously you're a very uh, well-achieved <laughs> poker player, whether you think you've achieved everything you want to or not. But um, but what what would you say as you look at whatever success you've had, what, what are the keys? Why are you successful? I mean, clearly it's not just patience. You know, there, there's other things too. Like what are those things that you would look at as, as being your keys? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with... Uh... Like before, when money wasn't 
was more tighter and money was an issue with me. You know, I wouldn't play as freely and as loosely and as many times as I wanted to. And now money is more, uh, it's, you know, I have, I have enough to play most tournaments that I want to. And Yeah, I, I actually saw you were just stirring your drink with a $100 bill there. So yes. <laughs> Maybe not quite that much. But I, you know, I have... You know, I have money now. I can, you know, play more higher stake tournaments mm-hmm. without uh, worrying about my bankroll. I think, I think that's where most people have problems when, when money is too tight, they play differently. And I, I don't know if that's for everybody, but I know in my case, in my younger days, I think uh, that was probably the case. Well, it's a big thing for me. People have asked me to play different events and you know, offer to stake me in different things and. And I'm trying to be disciplined in, in what I play because I know I will play different. Like I can play like, a, I think I could play like 1100 and still not really play too different. For me, that would be a big, big buy-in. Um, but, you know, we start talking about playing the marathon at the World Series of Poker or playing the main event. And like, I just know that I won't take those spots that I should take because of the money. And I think if I'm going to play suboptimally and I'm mm-hmm. already playing against the best people in the, in the world, that's probably not a good combination. So so anyway so playing playing the games that you feel comfortable playing where you can play your A game. Yeah, I think a lot of my uh, I got like a cash out play like forty eighty mixed game and I know most of those players are you know at their top of their game. You know you'll have one or two players that you can play off of, but uh, most of them are really solid. And I like playing against better players, and uh, you know I do all right. You know, I don't do, I don't beat them consistently like I'd hope, but I enjoy different games of mix. You know, you play Hold'em, Omaha, and Study. That just, I enjoy playing those different games. You know, I'll probably, won't beat them like I'd beat the 2040 game, but I'd have more fun playing it. So why do you enjoy playing against better players? Uh, I like to get better um, in order to, Get better. I think you need to play against better players. Learn. Um, I don't know if you learn a lot playing limit poker compared to no limit. Like I think I learned a lot last couple of weeks playing with Maurice Hawkins. I mean, mm, sure. I think he's a very good player and played with him a couple times at Council Bluffs and once in Tulsa and. I have I think, a good story about him. I think he's very solid. I have a good story about Maurice Hawkins. So <laughs> I was playing. Just I interrupt people. That's what I do. <laughs> but but I was playing. Uh, I've been to Vegas one time. I was there for something else. But it was during the World Series, so I played some of the dailies, and um, and uh, I made a pretty deep run in one of the daily deep stacks. Uh, and he and he came to the table, and I'd recognize him from I don't know one of the one of the TV shows or whatever. And he came in, he was just a big personality. He's just going to run over the table and all this stuff. And he's like, you guys don't even know who I am. And he was just kind of laying it out there. He's like, I know, I know who you are. And I mean, he busted within like 20 minutes. But uh, kind of a fun story to meet him. He just, you know, he was kind of layering that on. Like, I'm, I'm the guy. I'm the guy to beat. And you guys should all just walk away right now. But uh, seemed like it seemed like a genuinely a nice guy. And a good yeah, player. he's generally a nice guy. He's yeah. a little nicer early in tournaments than he is later in tournaments. You know, he can... Get under people's skin, you know. Is that intentional? Is that part I think of it is part of intentional. speech play? And... I think Blake has that type of game, which I think, you know, when you're really good to great, you know, you're going to have that confidence and aura of your mm-hmm. of yourself. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't come off great, but, right. you know, deep down inside, both of those people are nice guys outside of poker. And even at the poker table, they seem to be having fun and, yeah, and I've never even played with Blake. I've been in the room with him, but I've never been at the same table. So I would like to do that. We're going to get him on the show at some point, too. He said he'd like to be interviewed as well. But it begs the question, William Kasuf in the main event last year, the mm-hmm. speech play, and obviously it's all edited, and so you don't get the whole story. But what do you think about that? His his, his mannerisms, both in terms of you know taking forever to make decisions or to at least act, and then also the speech play. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen that, um, you know, from different people with different styles, and I'm not a fan of it. I'm definitely not a fan of taking forever on a hand. Mm-hmm. You know, it drives me crazy, but, I mean, it's... You know, I mean, it's, it's the players' responsibility to call clocks on people, and I don't think they do it enough, especially at the World Series. And, I mean, 
he's obviously doing it for more of a delay than he is doing it for and the speech play I just I'm surprised he got away with it as much as he mm-hmm. did mm-hmm. especially with that lady I mean oh my gosh yeah he tore her apart really I mean, that was pretty rough yeah okay I was just curious what your what your take was because I've heard both ways people say well it's just part of the game if you know that the rules allow it and maybe, but wow! I mean, by the end, the, you know, the, the energy when you know his king ran into aces was yeah, pretty that profound. Was, that was the best part about the whole thing. I mean, I'm glad he busted out. I went to want to see oh, him at the table. Well, I mean, he's yeah. he's done really well after that. So I'm sure, actually. But you know, when they have the final table and they broadcast it, you know, quote unquote live, where you're actually seeing in real time, that would have been almost unwatchable if he was taking oh yeah four or five sure. minutes every decision. Okay, but I mean that is, I mean I've seen that people do that style just to move up in the money too. Yeah, and it's, I mean technically it works, <laughs> especially in a qualifier. You know, before you mm-hmm. get that bubble, before it's hand to hand, exactly, it's almost painful. But yes. I get it. You know, if you're a short stack, you're you have every incentive to sit there and tank until somebody calls clock, take the full minute. It's true. Yeah. So I cast my first World Series main event. Oh, is that right? Were you doing the tanking? To... I was. I was a short stack, and I was. I was taking my time. Yeah, and that's you know what a fifteen thousand dollar for the min cash basically or I mean that, that's yeah, a I think huge it was fifteen. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't you? I mean, frankly. Yeah, and it was. I mean, it was worth it at the time. I mean, I, I look back at it and I think I. I don't think I did anything wrong. I just think it. I don't think you can get away with that way. I mean, I I wasn't taking as long as they did now when mm-hmm. <laughs> they were calling clocks. So I mean, it's. I only got clocked once, but uh, I was definitely uh, utilizing the minute. <laughs> so you mentioned the World Series of Poker Cash. Now I didn't have a chance to go look. I, I know your your best cash on Hendon Mob is like one hundred one thousand. Where was that? What's the what's that the background? Was Canterbury uh, Poker Night in America, the one in August. That's right. Yeah, that was uh, one of those uh, tournaments that. You know, it was a weird tournament because, I mean, with 20-some players left, I'm folding aces on a, a dry board, which is something I've, I don't think I've ever done, to be honest with you. Can you break that down a little bit? What was the... Uh, was it because of the payout structure or just that you, your read was that you were, you're no good? Well, my read was that I, I, had, I was beat. I didn't know how, and I didn't know <laughs> what he had, but I thought I was beat. And I never found out if I was beat or not. It just happened they I played heads up with them, you know, at, at the final table and ended up beating them. So it turned out to be a good story, but I have no idea if I made the right lay down or not at that time. So what was that like? I mean, with the Poker Night in America, obviously they've got the TV crew, and how did that change? Was it just more harder to stay focused, or did it... Change anything with the structure and how you played, or like they have that at Heartland Poker, and I played that like ten years ago, and uh, when they had, that's usually that was back when that's all we had back then mm-hmm. was Heartland before the MSPT came. Um, so I played a couple times in the cameras. And it really didn't affect my game at all, but you know I've seen a few players that played a little differently. I mean. Hmm. I think Waz Waz played a little differently than he would normally would, but I don't know if it was the cameras or if he just didn't really like his hand or. Hmm. Okay, so he was less aggressive than. He was a little typical. less yeah. than normal. And it's hard to know is that is that the hand or is that uh, an intentional change or. When or you see the hand on camera, you know. So I mean, you know what his hand is, but okay. you know maybe he has history of that hand where. You know, that's the reason he chose to fold it. Right, right. Well, congrats either way on a, a huge, huge score. Yeah, that was good. That so, was so even somebody that's, that plays a lot as you, as, as much as you do and has had a lot of nice scores, is that still, I mean, satisfying in, in terms of not just a, yeah, I play poker, I'm supposed to win once in a while. It's a monetary, logis, you know, sort of a logician's approach to it. I mean, you know, internally for you, do you feel like, man, that, I feel proud of that achievement? <laughs> Yeah, I'm definitely proud of that achievement. I mean, I'll definitely... I mean, that's what we play for. I mean, we play to win. You know, more times than that, you're not going to win. <laughs> it turns <laughs> out. And more times than that, you're not even going to cash. Right. But that's definitely the reason why we all play the game. I mean, it's a competitive 
you know, I don't know if it, people want to call it a sport or not, but mm-hmm. it's definitely uh, keeps people competitive. See, my theory on if it's a sport or not is if you can play defense. <laughs> so you can argue you could play defense or not. Like like golf, for example. I'm not ripping on golf, but it's hard for me to say it's a sport unless, like, I could be standing next to the guy yelling at him <laughs> or, like, you know, clapping my hands. Or If I could play defense, I'm up. I could wave my arms in front of the ball if I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, no, it's 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 cool. It's, it's a great score. So as you think about, um, you know, obviously you play some of the weekly tournaments. You've played some of the smaller binds. You play some of the bigger ones. So you're, you're playing with this mix of players all the time, cash or tournaments. What do you see as the biggest mistakes made at the table or categories of the biggest mistakes where, you know, you as a very experienced player are probably just smiling on the inside going, oh, baby, that was that was not good. And so as us recreational players or, you know, less experienced players are coming in, trying to move up in stakes little by little, knowing we all have blind spots, knowing we all have holes, knowing we all have all of this data that we're supposed to be thinking about, but we can't. We don't have, you know, it's not internalized yet, and so we want to focus on those big mistakes. I guess, what do you see as those categories or those biggest mistakes that are consistently made? My biggest mistake I see people do is overplaying kings and aces, and uh, how I, from what I've seen, I mean, I'm seeing people typically three, four, you know, two, three, four x, you know, a pot and some reason this guy just had a sudden six hits, six or seven exit pot I'm going you know he must you know have like a small pair or something he doesn't want to see it and then no one everybody folds of course and then he shows kings or aces mm-hmm. going, why would you do that I mean it just didn't make sense but I mean I've seen it a lot of times recreational players so overplaying in terms of just betting too much being scared of being beat or yeah. playing scared with big hands and you know, if there's a hand you want to play, you know, you want to play with the big hands. Right. And to me, overbetting pre-flop with those hands is is the biggest mistake I see. It's always this, it's always this rub. I, I totally agree with you. Like, I I want people are always like, well, this is my favorite hand. I'm like, well, it's still aces for me. But, but you know, I mean, I, I just had this situation the other day where somebody raised, somebody called. They both, they went 3x call, and I went to, like, I don't know, 9x because I, I wanted to, I had aces, I wanted to play, you know, heads up, and I get, end up with three callers on that thing. And so, and well, the flop comes two, three, four, and I ended up busting in that spot, you know, the way it worked out, a long story. But, you know, afterwards I was talking to somebody, they're like, well, geez, I would have gone like, you know, 18x or whatever, just some, some mega number just to take the blinds that are, or the, you know, the, the seven big blinds that are out there or whatever. And I was like, I, I'm just not that kind of player. Yeah, I wouldn't re- definitely wouldn't recommend yeah. that. I mean, overbetting big hands like that. You want to, I mean, it's that was just play, uh, right? one hand out of, you know, how many hands you play like that, and you right. you don't lose and you don't remember it because you didn't lose. Right. Because generally exactly. you'll remember the hands you lose. You won't really remember the ones you win. Right. No, that's 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 actually physiological. It's true. You forget the negative things way more than you remember. Or, uh, you remember the negative things way more than you remember the positive things. Yeah, sad but true. Of course, then I have the this is the same tournament out in Vegas that I was telling you about earlier with Maurice Hawkins was I, I was in the big blind with five deuce and the guy min raises with aces, so of course I I call mm-hmm. you know and the flop comes you know king five two and he like ships seventy big blinds like just open shoves seventy big blinds <laughs> and so I snap him off and of course he berates me all the way out of course and but then all the way out, he, all the way out he's saying well I wanted a caller like okay well you wanted a caller that didn't hit I mean. Yeah, which is it? And so it's, there's the opposite side of it too. Where, and that's where I thought when you were saying overplaying aces, that's what I thought you meant, like, you know, getting married to that one pair. No, what I've seen is just overbetting it okay. myself. That's I mean, good. I mean, yeah, obviously you get people get married to them too, but right. I mean, from what I've seen, most of the mistakes that I see okay. is pre-flop and then. So just giving away value yes. that's in that hand. Any yeah. other sort of mistakes that you see categories? Well, I mean. Like, there's a lot of people that, you know, overplays their ace highs, you know. I don't see, uh, you know, I see people not folding, you know, the flush draws and the, but I don't, you know, a lot of times when you have some value there, I don't, I don't see why they, they should be playing it anyway, for the most part. I mean, I wouldn't risk their tournament for it, but. So they're, 
So you're saying they're they're staying too long in with flush draws? Sometimes they stay in too long, you know. Not getting the right price. Not exactly, not getting the right price. Okay. That's probably the word I should have said. Okay. Okay. And so in, in those situations are you do you tend to think, well, they should have just folded or they should have taken a more aggressive line and semi bluffed in general? Well, I mean in general, I mean they're flat and you know which um, which is a, probably the right approach if they're doing with the flush draw, but you know they'll get married to them and they'll call off you know mm-hmm. on a flush draw, which generally <laughs> it's never a good idea. Okay, okay. So so I'll, I'll bring up this really vague situation, and it's intentionally vague. Okay. But the idea is to for you to tell me well what pieces of information are missing that you'd have to have, because normally. Um, with the other recreational players, we break down hands and we have all of the information. You know, everything from all the chip stacks to what type of player they've been, what's the action been recently, frequencies, all of that thing. And then we break it down and, and make a, a decision. But what I'm trying to get at is what are those really key pieces of information that you'd absolutely have to have? So I'll give you a really vague situation. You tell me, well, okay. this is pointless without this. So I need to know what this is. Okay. Um, so uh, under the gun raises, the cutoff calls, you pick up ace jack. What do you do? Where am I? What position am I? You're I'm sorry, you're on the button. Oh, I'm on the button. Yeah, you're on okay. the button. So the the under the gun raises, cutoff calls, you're on the button with ace jack. Well, I have history with ace jack and it's generally not <laughs> oh, good. No, no. <laughs> you want to get something out of king queen or something? So uh, I mean ace jack I mean is is a strong hand, but under good raise probably has me beat. But I'm not gonna fold ace jack there and I generally ain't gonna three bit that unless it's I know that player well enough to three bit him. You know, generally they're gonna respect my three bit but being them on the button, they may not respect it as much. Mm-hmm. So generally, I a lot of times I'll flat there and disguise my ace jack, which isn't really disguising because it's not to me. I, I don't categorize that as a really strong hand, mm-hmm. but that might have something to do with the history of me not winning with it as much as. But you're saying it's too strong to fold. Yeah, correct, correct. Okay. So generally, I'll either if I do three bet. And if I get four-bitted, there's no way I'm continuing with the hand. Mm-hmm. So generally, I'll flat. For the most part, I'll flat with that hand. Which is part of your overall philosophy of, in general, in keeping, let's, let's see a flop, keep control the pot. Control the pot. And stand, and be, you know, you're in a position with a very pretty good hand. Mm-hmm. So. And it's fairly disguised, like you said. It's not super disguised, but it's fairly disguised. Correct. Because a lot of people will three-bet that in position. And you're going against an undergun razor, which... Most like you know, most time is going to have that hand beat or has a pocket pair. So what I've heard you say in, in implicit in that is the only consideration I've heard so far is the type of player. That might change if they're hyper aggressive. You might three bet them if they're super tight. But you could potentially of, even fold, I suppose. And a lot of it has to do with my chip size. What time yeah. of the where are we at in the blinds compared to my chip stack. So talk about that a little bit. Like what? Here, here's one of the one of the things that we struggle with a little bit as Rex is, or less experienced players. We're all Rex, I guess, to some degree. But sure. less experienced players is okay. I can pay attention. I can say, oh, they have fifty big blinds and I have twenty big blinds, or they have twenty big blinds and I have fifty big blinds. Look at me. I'm really proud of myself. I paid attention to that. <laughs> so what? So when you say it depends on my stack size, tell us a little bit more about what matters. Like what stack sizes. Might re- might change what you do. Well, let's say I have fifteen blinds or less. I mean, I'm in a shove mode um, compared to if I have fifty big blinds, you know. And he has fifty big blinds. We're both deep, you know. You want to make sure you get to see see a flop, and you know, I pot, I'll pot control that and uh, just call. And but if you're you know, like I said, if your 15 blinds are smaller, you may want to shove. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't recommend calling, you know, four, four you know, you're going to be down to 11%. You see a flap and you miss, you know, you might as well just shove her home. So shove or fold maybe yeah. at that point? Correct. Okay. And so how, what if, what if um, so say I have 15 and they have 15, what, 
what does that tell us? If they under the gun raise and they the three X and they have fifteen big blinds, is that more of a strength a sign of strength or or well, timidity or to me it's it's usually a sign of strength. I mean generally if a person that has that many blinds wants a caller if they're gonna only three mm-hmm. exit with fifteen bigs. Right. They're gonna be strong in that in their holdings, I'm sure. And uh, you know, a lot of times you know, I'll see that, and we have, you know, I'm not gonna get this guy off this hand. I probably don't have him beat right now, so I'm more off, more up to fold than I will just call that mm-hmm. spot or shove. I don't think I'll. I think I'd shove. I think I'd fold more than I would any other play in that spot. Do you generally disregard the first caller as as somebody that's fairly weak? I mean, in terms of obviously in a squeeze situation, you're thinking about that a lot. But yeah, in that under place, gun, like a caller. Well, please? so the under the gun raise and, and the cutoff, just the person just to your right called. When you're thinking about, um, do I fold, call, or raise? How much consideration do you give to the to the first caller? Like that under the gun person, I'm going to put more strength than I am the cutoff person who just calls. Mm-hmm. But that uh, under the gun, if they limp. Like a lot of times I've been seeing this lately is people limping with big hands. And they're, they're cut just, off, you're saying? So they, they just flat at the first I'm one? I'm saying like the under the gun person. Oh, yeah. Instead of raising, you know, their standard raise, they're just limping in. You know, if this person's not normally a limper, mm-hmm. you know, red flags are going to be Buy pounding. beware. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I've seen this numerous times in the last week or two, and it just... You're looking to limp raise? That's all they're doing is just trying to lip raise, and mm-hmm. you know you can see it, and that's that's where, to me, reopening the situation. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd rather see a cheaper flop, mm-hmm. and because this guy, I feel if he's limping, he's not a limper. He has a short stack, relatively short stack. Right. All he's looking to do is limp raise. Yeah, and if you know you're going to be raise folding, it yeah. doesn't make sense to raise then. Correct. Okay. You better you're better off just seeing a flop. So what difference does it make if let's say you're both fairly deep stack? Um, does it matter if they have seventy big blinds and you have forty versus they have forty and you have seventy? Does that change how you would approach that situation or do you just say, Hey, we're both deep stack, let's see where this takes us? Yeah, I would consider they're both deep and see where it takes us. I mean, obviously you want to be in the seventies more than the forty, but uh, to me I position them there basically the same, you know. You're saying the effective stack is 40, whether it's yeah, whoever's whether driving have... that. Correct. Okay. Because I know some people, there's a there's a train of thought out there at least for, well, I don't want, you know, if, if they've got me covered or I got them covered and survival is such a big part of tournament poker, it might change a little bit who I'm willing to dance with. But um, I, I tend to be more of, we're both deep stack. Yes, I'll consider that as we start approaching, you know, the turn of the river. Yeah, I, I consider them basically, you know, we're both deep stack, and I'm more concerned about how that person generally plays more than I am where his chip stack is. You know, if we're both deep, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I'm not going to worry if they're 40 or 70. I'm more concerned how they play certain hands mm-hmm. and more, more leaning on their past the past history that I have with them and from what I'm observing at the table and so at what stack size do you start to say you know as you're getting deeper in the tournament and you know you're going from 200 big blinds to 100 and and on down at what stack size do you start feeling your game changing well when you're at 20 bigs I mean generally you're going to be at that stage where you know you're going to be shoving more and you're going to be right um you know, re-raising your lot. Yeah, but your three bets are a shove, and your yeah. So at thirty or forty bigs, you feel like you're still playing your regular. Yeah, I think game. I'm at a regular game. Okay. Cause, I mean, here in Minnesota, I mean, we're generally at that thirty, forty bigs pretty quick. For sure. So, yeah. I think Minnesota players are generally better playing short-handed or short stack. You know, in general, from from what I've seen in from traveling, hmm. it seems like Minnesota players are better short stack players than like players 
you know, outside of Minnesota. So are you saying like in other states, the weekly tournaments even are, are a deeper structure or just because outside of the weekly tournaments here, you're playing the bigger events that have the deeper structures or? I'm just saying our weekly, we don't have, our weekly tournaments aren't as deep, you know, in other parts of the country that I play is, I'm generally not playing weekly tournaments. I'm right. playing their, you know, WSB circuit or, right. or something where there's deeper you know, like hour long levels or whatever they might be. Yeah. Okay. And WSOP circuits there are like 30 minutes for the first 12 levels. Mm. I mean, it's generally okay. similar. But, you know, those are, you know, all those places, you know, you have to get a stack early, you know, to be able to make some noise. Right. I think. Yep. Yep. And so, so when you think about, um, like we talked about some of the most common mistakes, some of the, the ways to approach, you know, this vague situation, but like key concepts. If you were to th- think about people that are just learning the game, or they've just been playing in the free poker network or straight flush poker tour, or they're playing the thirty dollar buy-in, or they're just playing their home game, and they want to move to that next level. And I know it's been a while since you've thought about, you know, that early on stage. But uh, with all of these different things that we talk about on the podcast, with all these different things that we're supposed to consider, stack sizes, ranging people, three bet strategies leg tag, you know, mm-hmm. all of these different things that we're thinking about. What are some of those key concepts you'd say, these are foundational, you really have to get a hold of these, other than, you know, what beats what? <laughs> you know, what are some sure. of those just critical things you have to have a master of? Well, to me, I think, I mean, yeah, obviously the those are important too, but I'm, to me, I think they got to get down to, they got to get to ABC poker. They got to funnel, you know, get their easy part of the game down strong. They got to be strong at the easiest part of mm-hmm. the games. Whether they need to be shoving with their flush draws and straight draws, they have a spot where they can do that. Whether they can be playing basic, you know, as far as uh, calling here, raising, they got to get that basic pre, pre-flops down and they got to get post-flops down. A lot of it has to do with playing more. You know, the more they play, the more they're going to learn. Mm-hmm. So would you recommend, then, for, in terms of ABC, as somebody's first learning the game, get a handle of what opening hand ranges are, even though, you know, as you get more advanced, there's more of a feel to it, and you're adjusting to the table dynamics, but maybe start with, here's the range of hands that you play under the gun, all the way through to the button. Yeah. Here's what you continuation bet. That's definitely where they should start. Mm-hmm. And the more they get a grasp of where they, you know, once they get that part down, then the game will become a lot easier. Mm-hmm. It'll get chips in front of you, and it'll just help their game a lot more than if they're playing every other hand and going bust. Right, and I saw this saw this move on TV where a guy three bet with seven deuce, or three bets with seven deuce and triple barreled all the way through and won a big pot. You know, I think sometimes you get enamored with those sorts of things. Go, ooh, I'm going to try that. And you realize there's actually more of a method and a strategy behind that than... Yeah, definitely. I mean, that person probably had set up where they've had hands previous where they are labeled or he's playing tight. Mm-hmm. And so he just decided to play a hand. Right. They've only shown down monsters. and mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so, I wouldn't recommend that. So, right, you know, right. <laughs> especially with no equity at all, right? But, okay, so playing ABC poker, which is really just straightforward, bet when you have it, call when you have it, whatever. Yeah. Don't, don't get too crazy. Yeah, I think in those smaller tournaments, people that play that way generally last longer, and they're going to have more opportunity later on in tournaments. These tournaments aren't generally going to be won or lost in the first couple hours. They're going to mm-hmm. be one in the later rounds. You know, the last two hours is when you're going to make your hands. It's going to make or break your your stack. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to double up, triple up, or you're going to go bust. Yeah, it helps me to always think, and, and I went from hyper-conservative and, and nitty to, you know, oh, aggression, I like that. I went hyper-aggressive, and, you know, I feel like I'm trying to settle in on, on wherever that is. But, um, you know, you start. To, what's helped me... Uh, try to balance that and say, okay, I played this tournament at Grand Casino Mille Lacs the other day. 
whatever. And it's each other 12,000 chips, and I had looked, and it wasn't a lot of, wasn't a big entry, but I said, okay, to be at average stack, not that average stack is everything, but to be at average stack by the time we cash, I need to have like 100,000 chips. So that helps me frame that. Because so when you're in a pot where there's 4,000 chips in the middle, you think, oh, I want that. I want to go after that. And, of course, it is nice to build a stack early. Like, am I going to risk this for 4,000 chips knowing I'm really going to need at least 100,000 chips by the time we get to the final table? So I think that's helped me at least keep that in perspective, that mm -hmm. I need to survive and build enough so that when I get into those 50,000 chip pots, those might be worth going after. Yeah, exactly. I think you nailed it. I mean, you really should have a, some sort of game plan. Every tournament you should have a game plan. And knowing what it takes to get to the final table as far as a chip stack mm -hmm. is really easy to calculate. And everybody should have that down. But, you know, they should have shorter-term goals too, you know. Mm. It's, you know, the break is in an hour. You know, maybe I should have, you know, you know, 20 30% more than what they have right, right. now. They should be able to move their stacks a little higher, higher. Yeah, I think people don't understand how the it's 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 a non-linear average stack growth as you lose people. You you lose the first person in a 100-person tournament. The average stack doesn't change much. Correct. When you're down to 20 people, you lose one. It's a pretty big bump and I think people don't realize that and I think that's <laughs> part of for the for the rec players listening out there. I think part of why people get into that middle stage of the tournament and they just blind off or they don't know what to do because they don't realize they they need to build a lot more than they are. They think, "Oh, I'm at 30 big blinds. I'm at average stack." Not realizing that in the next hour, that average stack is going to be at least double <laughs> where it is now. I played at Aces, and I was playing against this tight player. You know, it was a bounty tournament, so everybody's just licking their chops, saying, <laughs> are you going to go all in eventually? <laughs> so right. we so go over the top, and uh, right. this guy would just keep blinding up, and he said, he's sitting there with 1,600, and the blinds are 1,000, 2,000, yeah. and the antis are like 300. Right. And he's just thinking that, well, i got four more hands. I went, yeah. Do you really have four more hands? Right. Do you have your? Are you giving yourself a shot? You're really giving yourself no shot right now. Yeah. Because I mean, really, he should have never been in that spot in the first place. Right. Because all he was doing was blinding himself down. Yeah, and so then you blind off more, and then you triple up even to what two big blinds. Yeah. You know that's the hard part. And I think part of that is I think there's a fear of losing. I think people don't want their day to be over, you know, because they're playing it for fun. But I also think they're they're just there's no no understanding. I think of like hand equity at all. Like, even do seven against ace-king, what is that, 35 40%? Correct. I mean, that, you're going to win a fair amount of that sort of thing. And so, you know, people are like, you know, you have eight big blinds left, and they're just scared to get their money in with jack-10 of clubs on the button with an, in an, you know, in an unraised pot. Because, well, jack-10 is not very good. Well, no, but considering the equity and, you know, you still fold equity, that whole dynamic, but then also hand equity if you do get called. And I think that I think people just don't understand that some of those hands are – you're still going to get it as an underdog, of course, but the alternatives and just blinding off so that you can later double up to where you are now, correct, doesn't give you any chance to win the tournament. Yeah, and that's yeah. and that was my problem early in turn in my poker life is I needed to learn that part of it. I mean, you can't you can't get yourself in the spot where you have five big blinds and you're virtually and you're coming into the big blind soon. When you, you have, like, you know, when you know it's your big blind coming up, you need to be shoving it mm -hmm. the next three hands. Right. you got to pick a hand and just go with it. But then there's some guys that, that do that. I know some of these guys, and they're, they're listening to this right now, and you know who you are who, who, who do this thing. And I'm always like, you got to get your chips in, and you don't, and you end up going deep in the tournament because you somehow survive at the right time. So... There is that piece where I think I've been, I can be on the other side of it too, where I can punt off a stack too early. I'm sitting at 13 big blinds, I got king seven, and let's just steal blinds. And you know, <laughs> and, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, that's that's not the right play, I don't think. Um, no, not with king seven. No, exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. And that's what I do. And Taylor, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, so there is a there's a balancing piece of it. And I think that is maybe what you're talking about, just experience. You know, I do that enough times, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm sick of doing that. And then, you know, you blind off too much and you're like, okay, I'm sick of being in a position where I'm shoving with two big blinds and I get seven callers in a bounty tournament. Exactly. You know, so I think, I think it, the experience does tell you more than books probably ever will. I think so. Yeah. Okay, so look, in, uh, look into the future. Uh, what's what's uh, on tap for you? you got uh, plans for the summer a little bit here, it sounds like, but what's what's coming up? 
I'm going to Baltimore in two weeks and play a WSOP circuit and then uh, after that I'll go to uh, spend the summer at the, the Rio. Nice. Do so you guys rent a place out there? How do you how do you do that? Uh, last year I rented a place. This year I'm gonna uh, stay with my my wife has a friend that lives in Vegas, so nice. We'll stay at their house. So. Okay. We're well, we're taking our first road trip out there. We got four four five six guys that? are gonna road trip out there. We're renting a condo for a week or so out there. So when are you going out there? Uh, June 10th through 18th, somewhere in that ballpark. I'm going uh, end of May, so. I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to get my car there because driving there is it's a long drive. It's a long drive, yeah. We're going to road trip. It's, we've never done this before. We know it's like 24 hours of driving. But I think what we're looking forward to is part of the, just the poker discussion and, sure. and building those relationships. But we're like, I'm sure by the time we get there, we're like, mm, next time maybe we'll fly. <laughs> yeah. We did that road trip. It's just not fun. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so anyway, so you, you got Baltimore, you got Vegas. Play around here a little bit in between there, I suppose, or yeah, I'll be playing. You know, like I generally play the Wednesday night daily here at Canterbury, and I know this weekend has something at Aces, so okay, I'll go there and play that's this. The five hundred dollar. All right, this might be released while that's going on, so hopefully, <laughs> if, if you're listening to this, you can look out and see how Jason's doing. If we made day two and with a nice big bag, so let's hope so. Yeah, well, going forward, this is um, thanks for thanks for doing this. Part of this is people get to know the the players in the community, and that as we go forward, I'd love to tap your brain as we look at actually specific hand scenarios. Love to circle back, and if you're willing to do that, I'm putting you on the spot now. We can I'll edit this out if your answer is no, <laughs> but we'd love to circle back at some point and get some perspectives that you have on specific hands that you know we, some of us wreck struggle with. Sure, yeah, definitely could do that. Okay, well, any final uh, words of wisdom for the folks out there trying to learn this game I mean if you're trying to become to go pro let's say do not go pro unless you have a backup plan because backup plans are what you need uh, you need to have some sort of income coming in outside of poker you know I would never recommend anybody to go pro without having some sort of a Rental income, some fixed income, some stream. fixed income that's coming in. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's generally uh, people that have money. You know, some might die and you inherit money, but that's not the way to become a pro. Mm-hmm. You're gonna you're gonna learn the wrong ways to become a pro. Just because the volatility of your income is Correct. just too much. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely you definitely want to make sure you have a. Steady income coming in, because you know you're gonna have streaks of uh, wins and losses, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of good days, but there's a lot more bad days than good days. Right. Yeah. I mean, there there are times where I know I, I track everything, and you know I'll not cash for 15, 20 events in a row, which you know I'm playing small events, but it still hurts the bankroll that I have. And then I look at it and like, well, the cash is, you know, if everything was perfectly random, you'd only cash 10% of the time. So really, one out of ten is what your cash rate is if it's a completely random thing. So, fifteen or twenty is not that uncommon because you're also going to cash three out of four from time to time, as well. So I can't imagine if you know, if your whole livelihood is based on that and not just the financial piece, but now it's an emotion becomes an emotional thing. Yeah, I would think as well. If you know, okay, I need sure. groceries. I need to cash. <laughs> and that's okay. where I mean. Good advice. That's what I was talking about with uh, where money is tighter. You play differently. I mean, you know, if you have a steady income and you know, your family life is, you know, if you're stressed at all, you know, someone's giving you a, a bad time, you're having a bad day, mm-hmm. that is not the time to play poker. <laughs> yeah, and I've noticed that too. Like if I if I go play, sorry, I'm taking off, I, I interrupt too much, but I completely 100% agree with that. Like if I've had a bad day at work, you know, I'm planning to go play poker, I'll still go play because for me it's like if I have the opportunity, I, I will take it. Sure. But I there, there has to be a really strong correlation for me between stressful work day and my poker results or an argument at home and, a, and a, the results or whatever it is. And do the opposite. If you're having a good day, hmm. generally poker, you're going to do well. You know, it kind of family life and poker intertwine in that way. If you're having a good day, you're probably going to win in poker. Hmm. If you have a bad day, you're probably going to donate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good. Well, thanks for your time again, and we'll, uh, we'll catch you in few months and catch up with how the how the World Series went. 
Sounds good. You can show me your bracelet. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> All right, see ya. All right, well, once again, thanks to Jason Seitz for taking the time to be with us on the Rec Poker Podcast. If you're not already, follow us on Twitter, at Rec Poker. There's also a Facebook group out there called Rec Poker. There's also a page, but we engage more with the group, so I'd recommend going out there, posting your comments. Uh, who would you like to hear from? What are some situations you'd like us to dig into a little bit or any other feedback that you have for the show? If we don't know about uh, feedback, then uh, it's hard to change things. So if there's anything that you'd like to see done differently or any advice or any suggestions, feel free to shoot it out there. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So once again, thanks for joining us for the show, and we will catch you next week uh, when we will have an interview uh, with Aaron Johnson, who many of you know from Red Wing, Minnesota. Fantastic interview, great young player. So stay tuned next week and tell your friends all about the podcast. Thanks much. So